Okay, we're we're live and kicking on Sunday the 27th of November. Uh, welcome to My Money, My Career. I'm Daniel Curran here with Stephen Curtis as usual. And um, today we're going to do our, our normal review of the week and Sunday papers, etc. So Stephen, what's uh, what's making the headlines for you this week? Uh, well, I think first up is obviously um, Fidel is no more. Corel Fidel, everyone seems devastated that a tyrannical leader is is dead. But it's it's interesting that Enda will uh, will run to to congratulate Fidel on his uh, shuffling off his mortal coil. But poor El Conor McGregor can't even get a tweet. Uh, well, I certainly have found McGregor then taking order from Castro. All right, to me for Look, I think it was very strange um, for the president put out this sort of vaguely fawning statement saying, you know, he was a sort of, you know, one of the world's longest standing statesmen. Well, he was a longest standing statement because he was a bleeding dictator. Um, you know, and I, I think there's uh, an awful lot of evidence out there of people being generally shot and killed for disagreeing with him in Cuba over the last 60 years. Um, and the justification for it seems to be, well, you know, he did a lot for Cuban healthcare, which is a bit like saying well, Hitler was a wonderful fellow because the trains ran on time. Well, yeah, it was, but you know, there's a few other technical difficulties along the way. So, I, I'm, I, I think I don't know why we're all getting so excited about it. Um, I, I, I know note that the Lord Mayor of Dublin, he's obviously part of the AAA or PBP or God help us all the Labour Party has set up a book of condolences in the Mansion House for Castro. Which I think is absolutely outrageous. I think it'd be shut down immediately. But um, yeah, it's it's just it's an it's an interesting thing to watch and see what happens. But um, he's dead, I suppose now, and we shouldn't really speak too ill of the dead. So I think the easiest thing to do with Castro would be um, to ignore him. And um, do you think do you think Trump now will be uh, looking at this as an opportune time to bolster? Cuban American relations, or do you think he'll? Well, I think one of the interesting things about Castro's death is, is Trump's initial reaction, which appears to have been a tweet saying Castro is dead, and um, would suggest me Trump hasn't a breeze how to react. He's sort of casting around, waiting for someone to tell him what to do. So I think, you know, it shows us some of his political naivete, and um, that's not particularly surprising, really, is it? I mean, he's not a politician, he's never been a politician in his life before, so. Um, I know we're kind of talking about Castro, but it'll be interesting to see how and Trump is certainly a different animal to Castro is, but it'll be interesting to see how Trump uh, manages and deals with being a um, being a president because campaigning is great, advertising is great, but now he has to get down to the unfortunately he has to get down to the business of actually being the president and making decisions and making calls and making judgments and certainly if the campaign is anything to go by, his judgment ain't great. So we are uh, we should be in for an interesting ride. I I think it appears that he has this, uh, a strange lack of curiosity about most things, and he'll kind of just take advice from whoever seems to be the most pragmatic, which means he could be a fairly malleable president. Um, and therefore it's very important and very interesting to see who he puts into his cabinet. There's a few headbangers that he seems to be hanging around with, and then there seems to be a few sensible people. I think Mitt Romney would probably be reasonably good addition to the party and um, some of the others less so um, but we'll have to wait and see I suppose it, we're, going, we're stuck with Obama until the 29th of 
or the 20th of June, I think it's the 20th of January, um, but he seems to be preoccupied with killing turkeys and putting up Christmas trees, so um, we're just going to have to wait and see, um, but um, you know, it'll be interesting, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. The other thing I actually, that I'm more interested in about Trump is what exactly he's going to do with his business, because uh, he, he seems to be unwilling to kind of walk away from the business, which I can understand. The problem with that for him is that if he doesn't walk away from the business, he is highly likely to be get impeached because he'll do something that benefits his business, that doesn't benefit the state, and that'll get him impeached. And I think that's a problem for him. And if I was advising him, I'd be telling him, you need to, whatever way you deal with this, you need to walk away. And if he gets his sons involved in running the business, which he obviously already does, and his daughter, I mean... You know, I'm sure they. I'm sure they. They'd have no problem at all not discussing business and having Chinese walls at the at the Thanksgiving table. Ah, yeah. Well, like that doesn't stack. Like that's because they're saying, "Well, the cat's looking after it." Oh, yeah. Well, well the cat has only four four legs and purrs, so it's presumably him doing the same thing behind it. And if Donald Junior. and what's your, what's the daughter's Ivana. name? Ivana. Or, is it Ivana? Who, in fairness, by all accounts, seems to be very oh, intelligent yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. capable. Yeah, they see. Yeah, they are. They all seem to be relatively intelligent, relatively capable. But that doesn't mean that Daddy's sitting in the White House. They're sitting in Trump Tower. They're saying, "What do we do?" He's called the shots for the last fifty years, but we can't ring him anymore. That doesn't stack. Um, and I think if, if for his own sake, he should put it into some sort of blind trust that he can't get access to it, even if he wants to put a time limit on that and it all vests back to him in four years' time, fire away. But by the time four years' time rolls around, he'll be knocking 75, and it's probably time for Uncle Trump to shuffle off the golf course. Lots of people would probably wish he had already shuffled off the golf course. Just not the, just not the Irish golf course, if we, can, if we can avoid him. Well, if he wants to come and, and eat, eat uh, steak dinners in, in Trump's bar and grill in Dune Beg, and sleep in his fancy 500 quid a night hotel, let him fire away. At least somebody would be able to afford to. Yeah, yeah. I think I think the biggest problem, actually, everyone seems to have with his, his hotel is his, um, is this wall he wants to build, ironically enough, um, on the beach to hold back the hold back erosion and protect his uh, link screens. Um, so... Yeah, I'm sure he can. I'm sure he could take that on as his pet retirement project. But anyway, we're stuck with him as the president of the free world for the next four years. We can worry about the wall and doing bag when all that's finished. Yeah, so I think look, uh, we've had a lot of Trump the last few weeks. Um, so I think we should move on to something far more important, which is something that I noticed in the uh, the Sunday Independent business uh, business section, is the return of something that I thought was was dead and buried, which is Golden Discs. Apparently, is back. Uh, I noticed in my local friendly Dundrum shopping centre that they've taken over from HMV, which is ironic that uh, that one uh, DVD and CD seller would shut down and another one re- would replace it. But I learned today in the uh, in, in the business piece of, of the Sindo that apparently they've done a big deal with Tesco, uh, the owner of Golden Discs, to supply Tesco 80 stores with um, CDs and DVDs and vinyl over, over Christmas. Apparently, it's very much a, a seasonal business because, as it says in the article, that you can buy your mammy a Michael Bublé CD, but you can't down, buy her a download. I don't know if that's necessarily true anymore. A lot of mammies now would sort of probably be more technologically advanced than we might think. But um, but just interesting to see that they're back, and uh, very interesting that sort of the nostalgia trend is very much carried through. And apparently, vinyl records is just a huge sales um, market at the moment now. 
you know, whether you'd be investing long term in something like that, I don't think so. But you know, it's certainly it's certainly a fad anyway. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I think I think, and I think. Look, the uh, a couple of years ago, it's quite interesting because Terror Records reopened, and it was previously on that street off of Grafton Street, which names escape, which which name escapes me, Exeter Street, I think. And um, it closed down at a big store there, and it closed down and it moved over to Dawson Street, and seems to be doing quite well. And, and and apparently, a lot of their growth is driven by vinyl, um, and there does seem to be a bit of a renaissance in vinyl. Yeah, I think look at gold. This is a nice thing you wrap up with the. Daryl Breen DVD or the Jeremy Clarkson DVD and give it to your dad at Christmas and we all sit down and watch it when we're stuffed the gills full of turkey um, on Christmas Day because there's nothing else to do and um, we put it back in the box and let it gather dust and you know I think that, that the, the CD DVD model is dead and gone you know I think a lot of households this year will be watching stuff on Netflix they'll be watching stuff on if they have a Chromecast or if most a lot of the new TVs now are already enabled for Netflix and all the various different streaming services but you know yeah there will be a bit of I need to have something under the under the tree and a bit of paper with a Netflix password doesn't really cut it um, but I think it's just that I mean a couple of weeks in golden discs no one's going to be buying any bleeding golden discs in January yeah so. Um, so apart from that moving swiftly on um, there's an article in the Business Post about Lidl that you were interested in. Yeah, I think like the grocery market in Ireland is very, very interesting. There's two things I thought was quite interesting. I think first is the continued sort of march of Aldi and Lidl, um, and then on uh, interestingly that Dunn Stores is now the biggest um grocery grocery provider in the country for the first time in a number of years, unseating Tesco. Tesco seems to be in a bit of a funk at the moment, um. And it seems to be sort of a general sort of consolidation around you've got Tesco, you've got the discounters, you've got Super Value, Musgrave, and you've got Duns. And Duns seem to be winning. Um which I think is which I think is good news, I think. Um Duns obviously being an Irish company, you know, it's not affiliated to any multinationals. It's paddling its own canoe. And I think it's good news. I think it's 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 an interesting story. The story about Little in the Business Post is interview with their and their director of facilities who's the guy responsible for finding green fields and building shopping supermarkets on them um, and that strategy seems to work very very successfully for them but it's it's interesting to see Dunn's also there too I think we're all um, certainly over the last five or six years I think got much more price conscious about buying groceries I think largely people felt they were sort of ripped off and um, and went to the discounters and you know they are like you can do your shopping in the discounters for an awful lot cheaper than you can do it for in the tesco x or tesco express on the main street Um, but it's interesting to see duns coming back and obviously they've managed to balance the value versus quality versus experience proposition and um, i think probably balanced it significantly in the in the value end of things but it's interesting to see that they've now come out on number one um, and It'll be it'll be interesting to see if they manage to fend off Little and Aldi because Little and Aldi have made a real push at um getting into the where we're not just pilot high and sell it cheap the gear we sell is quite good and um, and it'll be interesting to see do they succeed in that I think largely Duns seem to have been successful in fending them off. Yeah, I'd say um, Duns are probably gearing up for the fact that there's usually I mean obviously Lidl and Aldi have come in and done extremely well compared to what a lot of people myself included would have expected them to do but I think Dunn's know that as things improve and the economy improves and you know it's not just pure price anymore 
as much as Lidl and Aldi do try their best to kind of push it towards, you know, premium is obviously not the word, but just not, as you say, a stack them high and sell them cheap operation. You know, I think Duns are very cleverly positioning themselves as very much premium, which they always were, to be fair, but they kind of resisted the temptation to go down to the level of Aldi and, and, and Lidl. Um, because they know that as the economy improves, there'll be a bounce back and there will be a certain amount of, you know, look, I prefer to do my shopping somewhere. I, I notice in, in, in my local uh, Duns and Cornell's Court, they've done a huge renovation and put in, um, you know, a kind of a butcher and a fishmonger. And they're, I think they're, they're sort of appealing to people who actually want sort of higher quality, um, but all under the one roof, which I think, you know, uh, was obviously lacking maybe over the last 10 years. I think that the death of the craft butcher and certainly the fishmonger over the last even 15 or 20 years, it's certainly making a comeback. So good for Duns. I generally try and support Irish businesses as much as I can, as much as they're not exactly a struggling small Irish business. But um, I just think as much as we possibly can, we should be we should be getting through the doors of Irish businesses right from small to large. Um, so next up on the list, what else? Piqued your interest? I think there's, there's a very interesting story that um, Jack Horgan Jones has in the um, in the business post about Andrew Farrell, who is the guy who leaks uh, information from NAMA and you know what happened with him and that whole story. And there's, there seems to be just a general whiff around NAMA at the moment um, and how they've operated and how they've, how they've dealt with things. And I think there's two. There seems to be two general narratives. I think the first is that there was a bit of sort of hooky, hooky activity going on with certain individuals in NAMA, and Defaro being one of them. Um, and then there's also been, um, there's also been, I think, a general kind of feeling that the NAMA strategy of gather up all these assets, some of them, some of them theoretically great assets, and just flog them on the cheap to whoever will come and take them away from you may not necessarily have been the best strategy. Um, and we find ourselves now in a situation where the state has effect it appears anyway, would have sold some, you know, pretty decent assets a lot of the time to investment in vulture funds and others and got sort of significantly below market price and return. And there's a there's a couple of stories floating around of buildings that were sold for ten million and flipped on, you know, a year later for forty million. And I think there's there just seems to be a general general whiff around NAMA. Um, and I think it's it's something for the, you know it's an interesting case study in you know Nama became the largest property owner in the world it owned pretty much most of Ireland um, and how they dealt with that and it appears that, that there has been a lot of mistakes made and lessons to be learned um, and possibly a, a whole strategy would have been better um, but we didn't that didn't happen so I think that's kind of interesting you know Um and it's something that I think we're going to have to look at look at in the future for how we deal with these kinds of problems is creating one sort of super pango really the best way of dealing with things. Yeah, I mean, you know, we were um, happily having our uh, our morning coffee this morning before we, we came into the studio. And uh, one of the things we, we were chatting about while we were having a read of the papers was the fact that, you know, I just felt like NAMA really massively dropped the ball in terms of a huge opportunity that feeds into exactly the problem we're having now in terms of lack of supply and lack of ability to build and um, good quality first time and, and you know second time houses they're the sort of two three and four bed semis 
Um, I think, you know, we're, we're in a situation now with a strange um, kind of impasse for, for developers and, you know, the, their, their, um, their, their association are saying that, you know, we can't build these type of houses for the type of price because of land values and so forth. Like, we really let all the NAMA developers completely off the hook. And, you know, they, they went in, they were told, look, we'll take all your shite off you. We'll pay 150 grand a year to sit on your portfolio. And then, you know, we'll take the dirt and leave you with whatever you want. And you can walk out the door. Instead of saying to them, here's what we're going to do. We're going to bail you out. The Irish people are going to bail you out. But what we want in return is you essentially to become the bones of a state developer. And NAMA becomes not only the sort of holder of property portfolios but a massive developer with the combined wisdom and knowledge of all these developers who in fairness to them were certainly well able to get things done i mean you know you can say what you want about the reckless lending and borrowing or whatever they definitely got things done and got things done in a lot of cases reasonably well i mean there were the the anomalies like the priory halls and some of the cowboy developers but most of them built good houses you know and and they, they certainly have the expertise and, and, the, and the structures there to make it happen. And they should have been told between everyone here, between the, you know, the, 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 the financial clout we have and, and the development clout we have. We're going to, we, Stephen mentioned earlier, uh, sort of an idea of building an, an M60 um, to expand the amount of, of land that we can build on. Um, yeah, well, I think, I mean, this, Dublin's fundamentally a low-rise city. And, you know, I think we need to, Dublin needs to grow. There's a general urbanisation of, of everywhere and people gravitate towards cities. That's not a particularly new phenomenon. It's been around since about the 1750s. Um, and Dublin is, uh, Dublin is... Dublin needs to grow. And I think the way you grow Dublin is it's always going to be, relatively speaking, a low-rise city. We need to make Dublin more accessible to people and make places that are not Ranla and drunk Chandra and god save us some of these other places that no one can particularly afford to live in you know it's not that is not where everyone's going to end up living we are going to end up i think living outside of dublin um, and traveling in and if you look at places like london and other large cities what they've generally done is they've made decent transport links available to get people quickly in from suburbs um, and i think the suburbs that you go the way you do it is it's not about building bundles of rail lines it's about building roads um, and then bus people in and i think if one one if it was up to me what we do is we build an m60 from somewhere like arklo to draw it in a sort of a semi-circular thing around and then i'd have i'd have roads coming into the m50 points at places like liffey valley and blanchardstown and um, and have big park and ride depots there and people drive to Liffey Valley, they drive to Blanchetown, they plonk their car in a multi-storey car park and they get bussed into the city and bussed back out again. And I think if you want to if you want to get sustainable property that and property prices and sustainable um housing for people, you can't sort of say, well everyone needs to live sort of down to, sort of turn left off O'Connell Street and there's your house. That's just not how it's going to be, unfortunately, for everybody. But if you can make places like Stamullen and Enfield and Tyrrell's Pass and all these other places, if you can make them accessible and easy to get to, I think then you'd have a you'd have a much more sustainable setup. Yeah, I mean I think that's that's clearly the type of thinking we need. Um but the reason why I don't think it'll happen unfortunately is because of the fact that you know what what ultimately if you did something like that, what the government would ultimately do is they'd flog off the land 
to private developers who will then sit on it and say, you know, we, we, you know, we can't afford to build, we want to wait until the price goes up or whatever it might be. And you're going to end up with the same problem all over again. You're going to end up with this, you know, lack of supply. Whereas if we had gone with that NAMA model that I talked about, where if they released this huge tract of land with an agency that had all the development expertise there, and you said to them, look, in return for the Irish people bailing you out, you have to lead the massive development of these areas, and we need houses to be up within 18 months, and they all have to be sold off at a set price. There's no... I mean, we've, we've proved in this country that the market just doesn't work. So we need to come up with something different. And to say that, you know, we're going to build a you know, massive amount of houses and this is what they're going to cost. And a three-bed semi is going to cost a maximum of, of X amount in this area. And that's it. And if it's 280000 or 290000 and it should be done on a multiple of a realistic salary or two salaries of a couple that would actually be living in the house, not this arbitrary figure of, well... You know, a, a three or four bed semi in Stillorgan is, is 800 grand, which is just an outrageous inflation of what it should be. I mean, if you went over with eight, nine hundred thousand dollars over to, you know, California and see what it, see what kind of mansion it would buy you. Um, you know, I, I just think we need to completely forget about detaching ourselves from this idea of, well, if, if 800 grand is what that house is worth, well, then surely a three bed out in Stillorgan should be worth 400. That's ridiculous. We should start from a point of, you know, two 30-year-olds, what kind of salary would two 30-year-olds typically be on? Maybe 80 grand between them, if they're doing reasonably well, with some bit of security, maybe a teacher and a, I suppose the, the, the nurse and the guard combination that we always hear, although the nurse and the guard would probably be on a lot less than 80, if um, if you're if you're to believe the uh, the figures in today's Sunday Independent, where they, they lay out exactly what, um, what, what public sector wages are, you know. But I, de I definitely think we need a rethink of, of how we do business, but unfortunately, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think actually that leads into some of the next thing. Um, I think that we, we picked out, which is the change, the central bank rules. Um, the big news this week coming out of the central bank is that they've changed the mortgage rules. For first-time buyers, you don't need a 20% deposit anymore. Uh, you just need a 10% deposit, no matter what the price is. Previously, you needed a 10% deposit of 220 grand, and then it was 20% for after that. Um, and I think this has been this has been sort of cited as a great news for first time buyers. I kind of wonder about that to be honest with you. And um, I think that the same problems arise for first time buyers, which is the salary caps, and um, which make it which limit you anyway to what you can borrow. And um, I'm not necessarily I don't necessarily think that that's potentially a bad thing, and um, the salary caps, but fundamentally, you know, we're 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 just. Uh, dealing with the demand side here which is already there is already a shortage of supply I think increasing the, on the demand side when there's a shortage of supply is not necessarily a brilliant idea so um, you know fundamentally we need to get around the the, the demand the supply problems and start building houses and how do you build houses you just you just have to start Um, I think the state can can certainly build some houses I think they can get cracking with it and um, we just need to build just build, build, build. I think it's time for a little bit of lateral thinking in terms of what we do with, with with housing policy. And again, it's easy for us to sit here and say and have ideas, but it's just extremely difficult, apparently, and obviously with such a weak government, it's extremely difficult for somebody to come along with these, you know, reasonably lateral ideas and say, you know, let's actually change how we do business and let's look at other cities. I mean, 
and I know it might be an incredibly naive sort of thing to say and I know if you're involved in politics you know people would you know an experienced politician would tell you you know don't be so idealistic but from my you know non-political background like surely we should be just going to cities that get it right like your Berlins and your you know there's certain cities obviously I mean I know everyone it's Scandinavia apparently is just Mecca for everything these days but you know, go to these cities, albeit they're newer cities and there was an ability. Um, you know, it's funny when you go to Berlin, it's amazing how everything only looks about 60 years old. But um, but but look, they obviously, you know, built up from, from, from the ground, you know, not that long ago. And they had an ability to step back and plan. And, you know, I think we need to look at how they how they do it, how they do business, how they build. Like, it's it's such an Irish thing that, you know, even if we did say, well, let's look at the Docklands and, and you know, let's go up instead of out. Um, but inevitably what will happen is some developer will be given permission to go in and buy these stupidly small apartments where you have, you know, a double bedroom and a box room and, you know, you couldn't swing a cat in it and you can't raise kids in it. I mean, if you look at, you know, all the big uh, European cities, the all apartment living is just normality. And in fairness, you go to New York, they're not that big, but they're planned out reasonably well for, you know, people with kids can use them, people, you know, two professionals sharing can use them, a couple can use them. But they have to be livable. They have to have the amenities to go along with them. There's no point building, you know, 100 apartments and 15 parking spaces. Like, you know, you, there needs to be a certain amount of... They need to be built with the people that are going to live with them in mind. Not just how many boxes can we squeeze in to sort of get another 200 or 300 grand on on, on the pile when we go and sell them. I think we need, as I say, a bit of joined up thinking and... Um, and, and I think if we can do that, I think it's not that difficult to plan for the next 20 years, but there just doesn't seem to be the political will or the clout or just the intelligence to actually say, well, look, let's come up with a real plan that works here. And, you know, there's a huge problem. I mean, I know we're maybe shifting gears here a bit, but there's a huge problem at the moment with such a weak government. There's there's a huge, and this is this is not unique at all to Ireland. There's um, there's parties coming up, and I know your, your particular favourite being the, the ABC DEF party that we that we love so much, but this idea that you know anything that anything that comes to the fore just gets knocked down, and there's just opposition to everything, and I suppose it's it's you know it's very hard to get anything done, you know. I think, and I think we, I think generally speaking, we have ourselves to blame because you know we we, we typically vote in the local idiot um, to be our legislators, but there's all sorts of these buffoons that have been voted into Dáil Éireann, the AAA PDP. Hold out a headbanger and um, independent like Michael Healy Ray and Danny Healy Ray and all these people are like, Oh well should just build a few roads in my constituency and there's no strategy there. And whose fault is that? Our fault. You can't get out of it Danny Healy Ray and Michael Healy Ray and say they're complete gone beans. They're the biggest vote getters in the country and that says something about us. That's our fault. If we don't want people that are if we want people that are proper legislators, that have policy backgrounds, that have the the ability and the skills and the experience to make the decisions we need. We can't vote for the likes of Danny Healy Ray and Michael Healy Ray and Matty McGrath and all these other yahoos that are the local fucking Egypt and come in and say, well, sure, we just, we just, as long as everything's all right in my village, we don't care. That's not how good policy is made. And you can't also have these hard left and hard right parties that are just in opposition for the sake of opposition. And you get the likes of the PBP and the AAA and Ruth Coppinger and all those lads. And they don't want to be in government. Because if they're in government, they'd have to make decisions. They're far happier sitting on the outside throwing stones, and we vote for that, and that's our fault. Yeah, I think this was the 
the last election is one that I think people will learn a lot of lessons. And I think, you know, there was a there was a sort of a general sense that, you know, there was a certain amount of a protest vote against uh, Fine Gael. You know, it's hard. I mean, look, I'm no um, I'm no sort of dyed in the wool blue shirt or anything. But at the same time, I'm I'm uh, I'm. I just think there's a there's a lack of sort of pragmatism there when it comes to voting, and people say, "Oh, well, I don't want to vote for Fine Gael because you know, I'm not I'm not a, I'm not a millionaire or whatever," and, and and then they don't want to vote for Fianna Fáil again, and and you know Sinn Fein are a bit left, and and you know they've 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 gone and said, "Well, oh, an easy way out for me is to vote independent," and I think what people have realised now is a vote for independent is is literally just you're you're just causing a situation where nothing can be done and i think Fianna Fáil have a lot to answer for i think they are going to drag this country through another year and a half maybe only a year of of essentially stalemate government that can't do anything in a time that you know there's huge things happening brexit is happening trump is happening we need a strong government that can actually go in and get things done and i think what we're seeing now i mean if you look at the doll and what's actually getting done it's actually a farce at the moment and we need another election and people need to cop onto themselves and vote for a government not a local representative i think the problem i think the problem is 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 that if you're um in any way competent or intelligent or useful you see yourself and you're going to be stuck with the likes of matty mcgrath danny healy ray michael healy ray michael larry all these backslapping paddywhackery gobshites and if you're the likes of a Stephen Donnelly, who seems to be a kind of a smart enough fella, I think Simon Coveney seems to be quite a smart fella, Michael McGran, Fianna Fall seems to be a smart enough fella. Um, sadly, all these people are fellas, actually, which I don't really, I don't really know why. But anyway, um, you know, you're saying, do I want that as a career? No. Why would I? Like, I, I think that's there's a problem we have with that. Like, God help us all. We had a, we had a, we had a property crash. The entire country came to its knees because of property developers. And who's the biggest vote getter in Wexford? Mick Bleeding Wallace. That, that, like, on what planet is that a good idea? This guy who knows absolutely nothing about anything. And we've Mick Bleeding Wallace in running around with his long hair saying, oh, you know, I'm here to uncover uh, corruption in the guards. Well, great, Mick. Like, that, that's not a national legislature. That's just taking pot shots at the guards. So I think, you know, as an electorate, you know, we've a lot to, we've ourselves to blame for our own problems and I think if you are someone who's reasonably intelligent and reasonably competent, you're not gonna to want to be a politician, why would you? Sitting with those idiots. Yeah, very true, very true. Um well, last so, story before we wrap up, I think is um I wanted to just mention about speaking of incompetence, uh, Rush Credit Union is being liquidated. Um this is the father Ted of credit unions, uh where they have car raffles that staff win. I was on their website actually during the week, and actually you can you can find the number credit union member number for some of the winners going back for the last while. Funnily enough, there's no photographs of the winners, or there's no names of the winners, because presumably the person picking out the ticket obviously turned out to be the winner. Um, but I think I think the the, the serious point about this is that. There's a there's a big problem with um, uh, small financial institutions and can they run themselves or not? And it appears on the evidence of Rush Credit Union and some Newbridge as well being another example that they can't, and that the days of the you know the local politician, the local uh, fella there, I just don't think or the, sorry the local credit union, the local small insurance man, the local small money lending operation 
I think that's dead. And I think we're gonna we're gonna have to see an amalgamation, big amalgamation in the credit union sector. There's a lot of problems there, and I think it'll be it's it's one that'll run and run. Um, right. So I suppose before we wrap up for the week, um, I just wanted to sort of give special mention to particular people who I think have done extremely well this week. One is, despite it being a complete mismatch, is Katie Taylor making her professional debut last night and um, looked extremely good. Um, I it's think needs. It's great to see Ireland's actual uh, talent um, going out and winning, and that we're not treated to the usual fawning over businessman come general marketing guru uh, Conor McGregor. Well, look, I think, you know, it was great to see. Uh, I think it was a horrific mismatch. And I know, look, that's the way boxing is. And But, I mean, you know, she was a 100-1 to one favourite. We'd definitely like to see her get in and uh, and fight a contender pretty quickly. Um, but I think she did great and fair play to her and she deserves all the credit she gets. Yeah, she's, I think I think Katie's a great uh, sports lady. I think she's represented this country with distinction both in the Olympics. She um, is someone who doesn't turn up in a fur coat and a Rolls Royce, doesn't wave around wads of cash, has a bit of decorum about her, is clearly a decent athlete and, um, yeah, more power to her. And it's good to see the women getting their dues. Um, like you said there, it's funny when you when you rattle off all the all the gobshite politicians, uh, the, the, there is a, a sort of conspicuous absence of women there. Now, I'm sure there's gobshite women as well knocking around, but it would be nice to see... Um, you know, it would be nice to see a bit of balance there, um, but not just balance for balance sake. I think it'd be nice to see some, you know, some some really uh, really talented female politicians coming to the fore because I think above all else, we just whether you're, you know, black, white, purple, or blue, or a man or a woman, we just need a bit of intelligence, you know. Yeah, no, and um, more power to Katie. Um, and our other, just before we go as well, our other hero of the week, as usual, our our perennial hero here on uh, my money, my career is is the. The Lord and Savior Himself, uh, Michael O'Leary, who uh, who 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 called it all just uh, as we do ourselves, a bunch of half wits and lunatics. And um, once again, he, uh, despite obviously just trying to be a bit bombastic and, and offensive, he uh, he hits the nail on the head every time. Yeah, uh, yeah, Michael. I think Michael Michael did a did a spin out there at the Mullingar Business Association. Um, him being a local businessman. Um, well, I suppose he is actually with his with the Angus the Angus cows and the horses. But um, I, yeah, I think uh, Michael really talks an awful lot of sense. Right, so that's it for this week's uh, this week's episode. We have uh, what do we have now until Christmas? Another maybe four episodes to go between now and the now and the turkey. So um, so look, keep listening, subscribe if it's something that you're enjoying. If you have any questions whatsoever, you can get myself, uh, Daniel Curran. I'm at my underscore dfi, and I'm at Stephen Kerr. And that's both on Twitter and on Instagram. Um, So look, send us any questions, queries, anything you want to talk to us about, we'd be happy to answer. And please subscribe. And see you next week.